looking around, doesn't know. Now he's going to the outside. I cannot believe Hogan would stoop to that low. The flying elbow, punch the leg, it's over. We have a new champion. And welcome to episode number 21 of the Sportscaster. This, it is May 24th, 2011. My name is Steve Bennett. I am here with my co-host, Don Ross. How are you doing today, Donnie? Awesome. How are you doing? Pretty good. Glad to get to you today, Jam Pack Podcast. Uh, first things first. The Sportscasters have uh, made a bit of a connection with the Fatty Hockey League. And uh, a lot of you might not know what it is, but it's called the FHL, the Fatty Hockey League. And uh, I, I encourage you to Google it and check it out. And there's going to be a link to the site on our site and uh, vice versa. But uh, it's going to be a cool partnership, Donnie, because we're going to be able to interview some really great athletes. Uh, Pat Kane, Tim Kennedy, some other uh, Sabres, and it uh, should be a fun partnership this summer. I'm pretty excited about it. I, it's something you've told me about in the past, and I know your brother's played in it, and I've never really gotten a chance to check it out, but it always sounded cool, and uh, I'm glad that we get to do it. Yeah, if you're a hockey fan, definitely check it out. Find out what the league's all about. Uh, it's, a, it's a very, very, very cool thing. Uh, one thing that isn't very cool, and I wanted to mention it, and it's a really sad thing, but I know uh, the hockey community is kind of coming together on this. Ian Jenkins is a 15-year-old goalie from Bell Tire in Detroit, uh, who had recently signed with the London Knights of the OHL, tragically passed away last week. Um, he fell off the bed of a pickup truck and had brain damage, and uh, they ended up taking him off life support. A very sad thing that I wanted to mention. Uh, and if you go on Facebook, uh, there's, a f- there's a page set up. If you just search for Ian Jenkins, it comes up just where people are lending uh, prayers and support. A really sad thing for... Uh, a really young hockey player who had a, a really bright future ahead of him. And uh, hopefully you guys can uh, reach out and just give, a, just give condolences for, for Ian. I'm sure it's a really tough time for his friends and his family and his teammates. And anytime something like this happens in the hockey world, uh, it just happened recently with uh, an NHL player uh, who died tragically at age 28. Obviously, that's a little bit younger, uh, but hopefully the hockey community can come together and, and give his family some peace. Uh, another thing, uh, on the brighter side, I uh, wanted to wish my brother Anthony a happy 20th birthday. And uh, Don, I think you want to do the same. Yeah, uh, Kurt, happy 21st. Same day, right? Same Both day. Tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, May 25th. Uh, my brother was born in 1991. Yours was born in 1990, so just one year apart. Uh, but happy birthday to Anthony and Kurt. And uh, why don't we just get into three things? Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, I got a couple of uh, fairly positive stories coming out of the NFL. 
which is nice. Uh, some players making the most of their spare time while they're not practicing or playing. Uh, first one is a Bears rookie, J.T. Thomas, who most people probably have never heard of, but he was drafted in the sixth round this year by the Bears, uh, a linebacker out of West Virginia who still lives in Morgantown, and he's spending his time keeping in shape and visiting with his family. Every day, apparently, he helps his seven-year-old brother get home from school and get onto the bus and all that fun stuff. And he met a girl named Jocelyn Lavelle, if I'm saying that right, who also was a Bears fan who also happens to grow up or live in Morgantown. She has spina bifida and is in a wheelchair. Uh, When he found out that she was a Bears fan, like I said, he started talking to her a little bit. And she said she was having a rough week because all the boys turned her down for the eighth, uh, for the, what would that be? Eighth grade dance. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, so JT took it upon himself, and he asked her to the dance, and she gladly accepted, and he tweeted from the dance a few times. Uh, can't wait to hit the prom tonight. <laughs> I wonder who's going to DJ tonight. Uh, why am I getting nervous for an eighth grade prom? <laughs> At Suncrest Middle, eighth grade dance. It's jumping in here. The DJ is slowing it down. Couples only. And uh, the girl said later it was the best night of her life, and Thomas says he intends to keep their friendship. And if things work out for him in Chicago, he says he'd love to fly her and her family up for a game. So good for him, helping her out. And Yeah, that's a really cool story. Yeah. You know, you know what stinks is I didn't hear it. You know what I mean? Right. Like a story like that, it just doesn't get the, uh, get the coverage that maybe some other stories get. I found it, to give credit, uh, on Shutdown Corner. I guess it's a Yahoo Sports blog. So you're right, though. Stories like that would be nice if they made more press than what Ocho Cinco tweeted last. Right. All right. Epic collapse last night by Oklahoma City. <laughs> 15 points up, five minutes to go at home, leading the entire game. I mean, right from two to nothing they led. Yep. Uh, never trailed, and they just couldn't close it out. And I was thinking about it last night, and I think this Oklahoma City team reminds me of maybe the 1988 Bills or the 1998 Indianapolis Colts, examples of teams that were just not quite ready to take it to the next level, but really close. And I think Dallas, it'd be a good idea if they close this series out in five. Don't give this team another chance. But I think that Oklahoma City is going to be a team who's going to be contending for the NBA title Year after year after year, uh, they have a very bright future ahead of them, and it might have been frustrating to have that loss last night, but I think it's the kind of loss that a young team like Oklahoma City learns from and never lets happen again. And uh, I think that they are going to be a dominant force in the Western Conference for years to come, and I am very sorry to the people of Seattle for that fact. (laughs) Uh, my second is another feel-good story out of the NFL. Uh, Marcus Cannon, who apparently was a highly touted, uh, I forgot what position he plays, football player uh, before the draft, and he was six foot five, three hundred fifty-eight pound guy. I think he was a lineman. I can't remember. Def- I think offensive lineman. But uh, when he was a fifteen-year-old in Odessa, Texas, they found a lump on his lower abdomen, which the doctor says was just an infection. Don't worry about it. And then as a red, red shirt sophomore at TCU, the lump got bigger, so he went again. They did a small like a needle biopsy, said it was benign, don't worry about it. And then April, when Marcus was at the Combine, 
the Chicago Bears were said to be interested in him with the 29th pick, and the Indianapolis Colts head trainer, according to Marcus, said uh, that he wants another biopsy just to be sure. So Cannon says, quote, do whatever you have to do to prove that I'm fine. I want to crush all the fears they have. Well, it turns out when they did do a full biopsy, he has non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Bummer. Yeah, which killed uh, Roger Maris, Jackie Kennedy. Um, And he was supposed to be like a first-round pick, early second-round pick. And instead, he's he was going through these troubles. Said he didn't even watch the first day of the draft. He couldn't couldn't watch it. And he said the second day he went fishing, but the third day he said he was sitting home alone. Uh, and his phone uh, came up with an unavailable number. He picked it up, and it said, "Marcus, the New England Patriots want to congratulate you and welcome you to the family. Now hold for Coach Belichick." So, <laughs> in the fifth round with the 138th pick, probably a hundred or so picks later than he was supposed to, he got drafted. Uh, by the Patriots. And even though the cancer probably cost him millions and millions of dollars, he was real positive because he said the combine probably saved his life. If he hadn't found out for another year or two, he'd probably be dead. And even though it, he wasn't expected to play in 2011, he I guess there's an outside shot. He's only had one day of chemo sickness. He hasn't lost any weight and hasn't lost any hair. He says the hump, uh, sorry, the lump that used to feel the size of a baseball before now feels like a marble. So he's doing really well. So hmm. another nice story about a young kid who sounds like he's a nice guy and uh, turned his life around, really. I mean, it could have been a million times worse. Interesting. I have an NFL story for my second thing. Ray Lewis is uh, pretty concerned that the longer the lockout goes, the more violent and vicious crime is going to occur. <laughs> I don't think I read this, but I think I saw the article title. I just don't know about that. I don't. <laughs> I just don't know if there's a, a connection. I know that there's a good chance, whether the lockout ends or doesn't, there's going to be violent crime, yep. uh, especially in the more impoverished neighborhoods in the country. There's going to be murder and 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 uh, violence and and things of that nature. Uh, but Ray is really concerned that it's just going to jump up and, and get out of control if there's not football. It's funny, and uh, I just don't know. Yeah, it's funny people say things like that, and uh, they, you always hear every year that uh, something like spousal abuse goes up a crazy amount during the Super Bowl. Yeah, and that turns out like I've read an article that said that's that's totally fabricated. That's totally made up. So maybe Ray Lewis is reading similar. But well, I also articles. read an article that there was. Uh, I want to. I don't get this right, but maybe our buddy Jeff Duncan can clarify it at some point. But uh, right when the Saints were maybe the week of the Super Bowl or the week after or something, there was no violent crimes in New Orleans. But then they got back to it, <laughs> you know, afterwards. <laughs> well, it's nice they took. A but week they off. took a little break to, I guess, celebrate the uh, championship as a city. My last thing. Uh, you did a nice job documenting Macho Man's death, and particularly. WrestleMania 3 on the blog. Well, it turns out WrestleMania 7 was equally, not much better. if not more, uh, troubling in that 14 of the 51 participants, and they use participant pretty loosely, like as long as you were there. Like as far as I know, uh, Miss Elizabeth and Andre the Giant did not wrestle in any way, but they were considered in it. But 14 of 51, the Texas Tornado, Dino Bravo, the British Bulldog, Randy Savage, 
Sensational Sherry, Crush, The Big Boss Man, Mr. Perfect, Earthquake, Hawk, Hercules, Miss Elizabeth, and Andre the Giant have all passed in the 20 years since it started. I mean, these are these are people that are in their athletic prime. I mean, they're physical, just the prime of their lives. 20 years from now, I hope not to be dead. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a scary thing that happens. And it, a lot of it's steroids, a lot of it's suicide. It's... These people don't don't handle the spotlight very well for whatever reason. My third thing is basically the same thing. Uh, you know, I just wanted to bring up the death of the Macho Man Randy Savage. I know anyone who is about our age uh, probably grew up watching the Macho Man wrestle. I know when I was a kid, wrestling was just about everything to me. That and hockey were my two favorite things in the world. Um, and it's sad to see him go. But if you're interested in reading more about it, Deadspin has uh, uh, an ongoing series called The uh, Dead Wrestler of the Week. And uh, someone who I guess is called The Mark, the Masked Man, uh, he is the one who writes it. Uh, yeah, The Dead Wrestler of the Week. And this week it, it's, it's all about the Macho Man. They have all kinds of cool uh, clips, clips, YouTube clips of uh, events in uh, his career and just a really good history of his life. It's definitely worth reading. And you mentioned that the uh, WrestleMania 7... Uh, thing and I wrote a blog on our blog, the sportscasters.blogspot.com, and I use WrestleMania three. And here's the dead participants of WrestleMania three: uh, Gorilla Monsoon, uh, who died of heart failure at age 62; Joey Morella, his son, uh, he died in a car crash in 1994 at age 31; the Mighty Hercules died at 47 of uh, heart failure; uh, the Haiti Kid, one of the midgets who wrestled. Uh, died, couldn't figure out his age, but um, uh, he was said to have died of a heart attack as well. Uh, Little Beaver, another midget, died at age 60. The Junkyard Dog died at age 45 in 1998 in a car accident. Fabio Smula died at age 82. Natural causes. Dino Bravo died at age 44 when he was shot 17 times by a gunman. Yeah. Who apparently wanted to definitely make mob sure he was dead. Some mob-related yeah. incident. Uh, Adrian Adonis died at age 33. Davy Boy Smith died of heart failure at age 39. Frankie the Bird died in 2001 <laughs> in a house fire. Uh, obviously, the Macho Man just died. Miss Elizabeth at age 42. And Andre the Giant at age 43. 14 deaths. Very sad. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote in the blog, Vince McMahon, he's not dead. No. Uh, he's rich, and he really does take advantage of these guys. And uh, there's countless, countless examples of wrestlers who just couldn't make it even into their 50s. And the pressure of using and taking steroids, I think, is something that will always be a part of wrestling, especially as long as Vince McMahon and his fascination for bigger and better and stronger yep. exists. And uh, it's just a really sad thing. We played that clip at the beginning of the uh, podcast with the Macho Man winning, and he was considerably smaller even then. Like he was, I mean, so it seems he like, was lean and fast. You right, he wasn't a giant. Right. So I, I don't know. As he slowed down, maybe you're pressured more to put on muscle and whatever. Uh, I was talking to I can't remember who, but do you think Macho Man gave the best promos ever? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I it's think him or the he, Rock, probably right. Yeah, the Rock, and I think Mankind slash McFoley yeah, was yeah. very good at it, and Steve Austin was pretty good at coming into the ring. But uh, Macho Man's definitely in the top five as far as promos go, 
And uh, his classic match in WrestleMania 3, him and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, it's probably the most fun that I have to this day watching wrestling. I can always watch that match. It's about 15 minutes or so, and it's awesome. So if you haven't seen it, check it out. And it is, it is linked in that article that I mentioned on Deadspin. Nice. But, all right, for the podcast today, we've got a bunch of stuff to do. Uh, after this, an interview with Adam Schefter. Uh, earlier in the history of the podcast, we had a three-week period where we had Lee Jenkins... John Wertheim and Joe Poznanski. Joe Poznanski on, kind of a murderer's row of writers. And today we're going to finish kind of a murderer's row of uh, football writers. As we uh, had Jason Lochnafora two weeks ago, last week we had Peter, Peter King. King, and this week we have Adam Schefter, uh, an interview I did a little bit earlier. We'll do that next. Come back for a book club update, and then we're going to have an interview with Ben Nicholson-Smith of MajorLeagueBaseballRumors.com. And uh, then we're going to debut a new segment called 32 Teams, 32 Blogs, and uh, end with pick four. And once again, Don, it's ugly. (laughs) Yeah, we're not very good at this. So we'll be right back with Adam Schefter. Our next guest is from Valley Stream, New York, and is a graduate of the University of Michigan and Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism. At Michigan, he was an editor of the Michigan Daily, the university's student-run newspaper. After graduating from Medill, Schefter did an internship for the Seattle Post Intelligencer before moving to Denver in 1990, where he began writing for the Denver Post. While in Denver, he co-authored books with Terrell Davis and Mike Shanahan and has since co-authored a controversial book with Bill Romanowski. He also occasionally appeared on ESPN's Around the Horn. In 2004, he joined the NFL Network where he appeared on NFL Total Access and wrote for NFL.com. In 2005, he made a cameo appearance in Adam Sandler's remake of The Longest Yard. And in 2009, he took his talents to ESPN where he's a football insider and analyst, a warm sportscaster's welcome to Adam Schefter. How are you doing today, Adam? Hello, Stephen. How are you doing? Doing very good. Very excited to have you on today. You know, it's kind of uh, interesting. The last couple of weeks, we've had some of the, some of the big dogs here in, in football journalism. And uh, I think it was three weeks ago now, we had uh, Jason Lochnafora, and he kind of got his start covering the Detroit Web Wings and Scotty Bowman. And last week, we got to talk to Peter King, who got his start kind of working for uh, the beat for the New York Giants and Bill Parcells. And interestingly enough, you spent a lot of your time in the beginning of your football covering career with the Denver Broncos and one of the all-time great John Elway. So I just want to start there. Is there anything about Elway that a story or, or something that came up while you were covering the Broncos about Elway that we would be interested in hearing about? Huh. Well, it was a great pleasure. You know, I think of all the people that came through there in Denver that I covered. Shannon Sharp is on national TV. Mark Schlereth is on national TV. Gary Kubiak was the offensive coordinator as the Houston Texans head coach. Bill Musgrave is now the Vikings offensive coordinator. He was always backup. There were so many great people that came through that locker room, so many people that I really loved covering and dealing with on a day-to-day basis. And John was one of them. John was uh, always very professional. And, you know, subsequent to that, the funny part is, is during the course of his career, I rarely spoke to him on the phone, rarely. Um, Now, 
I speak to him more regularly later on. <laughs> and I, I think that he knows that uh, our relationship goes back to, what was it, 1990 I started covering that team. And so I, I've known Elway <laughs> for 20-plus years. In fact, I'll tell you an even more startling story. There was one summer where uh, somehow I found myself on a plane trip where it would stop anywhere in the world. Uh, a plane ticket that I was buying. It was a very strange thing, and I, I'd never been to London. And I'm like, well, I want to go to London. So I went to London. This was in 1987, so I would have been 21 years old. And I had dinner that night. I, I was gone that summer, um, like just in, in, in a campground. And I, and I had like nothing to eat all summer. No meat at all. I'm not a big meat eater anyway, but I, I just I, I wanted to have a cheeseburger. That was it. <laughs> and so when I landed in London, I'm like, well, I want a cheeseburger. I haven't had one in two months. So I went to this hard, this place called the Hard Rock Cafe, which yep. everybody knows. And uh, as I was walking out that night, well, we sat down inside, and it turned out I sat at a table in, in Europe, in London. They just sat you at a table uh, with even strangers. I sat with these two guys named Steve Sewell and Ken Bell, each of whom played for the Denver Broncos. And it turned out the Broncos were playing the uh, Rams, I think, in a preseason game there. Huh. And as we were walking out of the Hard Rock Cafe, crossing the street, going back to the hotel, uh, there was the man, the myth, the legend himself, John Elway. And I got a picture of him on the streets of London, me and him. And I was wearing a yellow sweater. He was wearing a red jacket. I still have the picture, except I was 21 years old, and John, 87, would have been, how old is John now, roughly? That would have been 23 years ago. He was 27 years old, 26, 27, 28. And boy, we both look a lot younger. <laughs> both look a lot better. Um and it was just amazing. I was a sophomore in college having no idea what I was going to do with my life. And there I was, standing with John Elway, posing for a picture on the streets of London. It's interesting because I think one, you know, Steve Eisenman is, is an example of a, a former great athlete who's having some success as an executive. Maybe Michael Jordan is an example of someone who didn't have as much success as an executive. How do you think John Elway will do, ultimately, as uh, working in the on the other side of the... Uh, of the uh, the field, so to speak. Well, I think so far he's done great. I mean, you look at the draft that he did, and it was it was very impressive what he did and what he's gotten done. And I thought he was superb in his first draft. And I think he's smart enough to know what he doesn't know, and he's smart enough to surround himself with a lot of good people, and he's smart enough to attack this with the passion that he has for it. And that's what he's done. He's thrown himself into the job. He's worked around the clock. He he's slowly and surely trying to win the respect that he feels he needs to get. Uh, with the job that he has, and I think he's going to be very successful doing it. The, the early signs, I think, are very encouraging. A guy like Tim Tebow landing there and landing in this situation, is that perfect for him to be able to, like, could he have asked for anything more than to have landed in a spot where, you know, John Elway would be there, or is that going to work against him in the sense that he'll never be able to maybe, you know, reach Elway's status, or will it work for him in the sense that Elway will be there to mentor him and teach him and guide him? Well, I, I think that Tim Tebow is going to have to figure everything out for, on his own. And there's no question about that. But, you know, he, he'll work hard enough to do that. And hold on one second, Steve. I'm sorry. No problem. Yep. And it's a situation where it can't help but have John Elway around there right now to learn from. But, again, I still think it's up to him to master the skills that he needs to become a starting caliber successful quarterback in this league okay so sure the lockout's going on and i gotta be honest it doesn't interest me very much it gives me a headache i wish they would just work it out 
But today, the owners are meeting in Indianapolis, and they did pass, I think, three new rules, uh, 32 to 0, all three. Can you kind of explain uh, the kind of subtle changes that the owners decided on making today? I've got to be honest with you, Steve. I'm not there. Okay. Um, I'm not paying attention to the rules. I'm kind of just I'm tracking other things. I was tracking the rookie symposium this morning, so I really can't speak to the rule changes. Look, the one thing that they've tried to preach all along is safety, and they're going to continue to do that. I think that they're saying that they're going to fine teams more heavily if they have continued incidents of illegal hits. But the truth of the matter is they said they were going to do that last year, and we saw increased fines, but uh, nobody was suspended, and and the discipline was upped to a certain extent, and now I guess they're threatening to up it even more. But I'm not there, so I can't really speak to what's going on at the meeting. So the rookie symposium, I hear it's no-go, huh? Canceled? No-go, canceled. If it hasn't canceled it, it will be canceling it. Bottom line is uh, I think it's one of the first casualties to what could be many casualties in this offseason. And the rookie symposium is something that's great for the players usually. They get a lot out of it. They get educated on finance sex, drugs, life in the NFL, I mean, the whole thing. Because a lot of these guys are 21, 22 years old, they have the world handed to them, and they don't know exactly how to handle it. Right. And this is an indoctrination into the NFL, and it's, it's, it's really good. I've attended it and been a part of it. And it's three, four days of intensive study, workshops. You'd be amazed at the lessons that they teach the kids with. And so this year's rookies are not going to get that like recent rookies have. And that's unfortunate. And I would imagine that if and when they get this labor situation solved, that next year uh, they'll have this year's rookies attend. But, again, they're going to miss out this year, and that's unfortunate for them. Exactly whose decision was it to cancel it? I mean, it, it seems like why couldn't they have it? What was the ultimate decision that they had, why they had to cancel it? Well, I, I just think that right now they're embroiled in this labor dispute with the NFLPA, and you're not allowed to do sanctioned activities. They want contact with the players, and I, I think that it stems from that. That's the biggest thing. Plus, I, I don't know if there's a part of it, but it's a lot of money to put a, on a function like that. I mean, they got to get hotel rooms. they got to get all the players there. they got to feed them for three, four days. It, it, it's, it's a money-making expense, and you're talking about teams right now that are laying off employees. So, again, you want your players to be exposed to this and to be smarter, but uh, they're not doing that right now for, I think, any number of reasons, the biggest of which is they want to limit their contact with players. A couple other interesting things. Last week it seemed for sure like Carson Palmer was completely done with Cincinnati. Now the owner came out yesterday and said he can either come to Cincinnati or retire. Is that somewhat of a negotiating plea or do you think they'll stick to that and what will Carson Palmer do? Uh, If that's the case, then Carson Palmer never again will play in the NFL and he will retire. I I believe that he will never play for the Bengals again. I I think he's made up his mind. I think Mike Brown has been like that. I think that he thinks that Carson Palmer perhaps will change his mind. I don't think that Carson Palmer is dug in and entrenched. And if that is Mike Brown's stance and he never bends off that, which is entirely possible, entirely possible, uh, I believe we have a stalemate, checkmate. Carson Palmer's done as a Cincinnati Bengals. He's done as an NFL quarterback. You think he's content with that? Is he is he ready to walk away? Yeah, right, listen, if he, if he wasn't, he wouldn't be doing it. Right. I think in a perfect world, I think he'd like to go play for one of those NFC West teams and get a, another chance to finish out the latter part of his career. But again, if it doesn't happen, I think he's all right with that. He's made a ton of money. Uh, he's had a successful career. It hasn't gone exactly the way that he would have liked. It didn't end exactly the way it would have liked if that's the way it happens. But he's all right. It, that trumps playing for the Bengals again in his mind. Hmm. 
Does Kevin Cobb end up in the NFC West? If you were uh, Andy Reid, he winds up in Arizona. Yeah, once yeah. he gets the lockout lifted, that's where I think he'll be. I believe that is his ultimate destination. I think the Cardinals have been eyeing him all along. I think the two sides eventually will be able to work out compensation. I think that that is the division you look at, but I think Arizona right now, Stephen, is the favorite team in my mind. Do you think Andy Reid's playing with fire there a little bit? I mean, Michael Vick, I, I believe, has only played one full 16-game NFL season, and you know the Eagles are a pretty solid team. Yeah, I, I would, I would think it would make sense to keep both, but just well, here's the issue: uh, if you keep both, Kevin Cobb's contract, which is scheduled to have one year, one point four million dollars remaining, is up after this year. You have to sign Michael Vick to a long-term contract. You can give Michael Vick a lot of money. You can't keep both players beyond this year. If you're going to get anything back for Kevin Cobb, then you have to trade him now. So I would, the question I would pose to you is, would you rather not play with fire and have Kevin Cobb for this year, or would you rather get back a first and hypothetically fourth-round draft pick? Yeah, I, I would probably take the picks. Okay, then, then, then that's the situation, right. and that's why they're going to do that trade, and that's why Kevin Cobb is going to be sent out of Philadelphia and onto his next spot. What do you think of all these player practices that are going on? I know the AFC East is doing something called the AFC Blitz with everyone but the Patriots, and I wonder where the Patriots are. I know maybe Drew Brees and the Saints kind of started this with getting 40 players at Tulane, and I know Sam Bradford's doing something with the Rams. Does this say anything to you at all, or is it just kind of you know working out together because you know they're together? No, Stephen, they have to do something to get ready for the season that could be. They have to. And so some team leaders are trying to organize amongst themselves. What I would say is, if I was a player, uh, I don't think that I would be going through those workouts. I, I know that's important to build camaraderie and everything like that, but if you tear up your knee, uh, Uh-oh. <laughs> smash up your shoulder, suffer some kind of season-ending injury, all these players have insurance now. They've all got their Cobra. They've all got their insurance policies, and that's great. But if you tear up your knee or uh, throw out your shoulder or whatever it may be, okay, and you do that for the coming season, you don't get paid at all. It's risky. And I know uh, just with the the Saints uh, practice alone, they had at least four players who weren't under contract at all to the team, and a couple of uh, rookies, I think, ended up showing up the following week. So it's definitely some players are, are willing to take a risk. But, I mean, if Drew Brees calls you and tells you to come to Tulane University, you're going to say no to Drew Brees? Yeah. yeah. Is Drew Brees going to pay my salary if I tear up my knee? No, <laughs> probably not. But uh, it's a tough situation. I, I would. Uh, it's, it's, it's really a, a pickle. You know what? I, maybe I'd go and I'd watch and I'd go through my own workouts on my own, running, jogging, you know, lifting, whatever it may be. But I'm telling you one thing. I would not... Mess around one bit at all. That's me. What about Randy Moss? Where does he end up? Don't know, Stephen. I think that, you know, not a lot of chatter, and there's not a lot of clamoring for Randy Moss. Randy Moss is a guy I think that will wind up being signed maybe after a wide receiver gets hurt in camp. It's not like teams are going to jump out, for I don't think, jump out front and offer him the kind of contract he wants. And I think it's one of those things like a T.O. situation that goes on for a bit before you see someone sign him. So it's very difficult to say exactly where he'd wind up. Is this lockout actually working out in the favor of Plaxico Burris in the sense that it's buying some time for him to finally get out of jail, maybe get back into shape. Do you think he'll end up on an NFL field next year if there I don't, is I don't NFL football? So. I mean, he's been out of the league for two years. He, he needs to get back onto a field with players, with team, in a structured environment, around coaches, around a playbook, and begin to immerse himself. So how does a lockout, not, how does that help him? 
when you need to be in football shape, going through the drills, learning a play, how does this help him? It doesn't. Mm-hmm. Now, does it, does it, is it a paralyzing blow? It is if the season comes and goes without any football. That, that would not be very good. That would not be good for anybody. No. But it would be particularly bad for Plexico Burris. Yeah. New deals. Does Peyton Manning and Drew Brees, uh, is that, are those deals that should be worked out soon, do you think, once this is resolved? Steven, we, 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 don't, we, we don't know how the league is going to look. We don't mm-hmm. know what the salary caps are going to be. We don't know what money teams are going to have to spend. We don't know when football is going to begin again. I, I respect and appreciate that you're asking the question, but who knows right now? Right. Literally. How do we know that they're not going to come back with a system that doesn't allow franchise tags, in which case Peyton Manning would not be obligated to return to Indianapolis, and that Peyton Manning is going to go sign with, hypothetically, the Washington Redskins? How do you know that's going to happen? I mean, do I think that's going to happen? No. But is it out of the realm of possibility? No. So, again, we're, we're, we're waiting. Everybody is waiting on everything to be defined, to be resumed, to be restarted. We don't know when football is going to be back again. We don't know what the rules are going to be. We don't know who's going to have what to spend. We don't know who's going to be healthy and who's not. We don't know what time of year it's going to begin. We don't know if there'll be tra- I mean, there are so many unknowns that you just can't ask, are these deals going to get done? Where's this guy going to be? It, it, everything comes with an addendum. And that's why everybody's so frustrated. Because right. you just don't know. So is June 3rd the big day then? I mean, what is the significance of the June 3rd date? Not much. It's the actual appeal of each side's position. The NFLPA arguing that the lockout is illegal. The NFL arguing that they're allowed to do it. But it'll be probably six weeks before we get a ruling from the judge. We're into mid-July. So, yeah, I mean, is it significant? Yes. What is happening on June 3rd will be significant in the sense that each side will make its argument. But you're talking about a good month, six weeks before we hear anything from the judges. And that, when the judges make their ruling, that will be significant because that will give somebody the leverage that they are looking for. And if it is a decision in favor of the owners, uh, that is a blow to the chances that we'll have football anytime soon. The sports guys are here with Adam Schefter. Just a couple minutes left. Uh, very, obviously a very frustrating situation here with the lockout and everything. So maybe a better question to ask. Just, I'm just curious. You're, you're one of the people who have certainly utilized Twitter. You, you, you tweet all the time. You really enjoy it. How has it kind of changed what you do? Uh, do you think it's changed it for the better? Or do you think it's changed it for the worse? How do you well, like well, Twitter? It, it's done better. It's done both. Um, and it's a good question, Stephen. It's done both. I think that it's brought more of an immediacy to everything. Uh, it's a way of disseminating information quicker. But I, I think that... Uh, It's a great opportunity to interact with the public and and the people that follow the sport. Um, That's great. It also brings out a lot of negativity in people that's uncalled for, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of cynicism. Sometimes it doesn't allow people to think before they actually tweet. Um, So that's not a great thing. But it's become a regular part of what I do. I mean, if I follow a story to ESPN, I'm thinking, okay, I've got to put it on Twitter. Like this morning, I followed the ESPN at their cancer from the rookie symposium. And I thought, well, I've got to get that on Twitter, too. So uh, it's become a regular part of what we do, and uh, it has many great advantages, and it has some drawbacks, too. Yeah, I know Brian Urlacher came out and said that he was uh, obviously disappointed and and thought it was ridiculous, uh, some of the criticism that Jay Cutler took in the uh, NFC Championship game last year. Is that kind of an example of where Twitter is a negative, where people don't take the time to kind of fully grasp the situation and just run right to Twitter? And, and, and yeah, just well, that's a part of it. You've you got to be smart about it. So, 
it's a situation where, again, you, you just have to be careful. And sometimes people aren't. They, they don't think. And, and, and that Jay Cutler story that you're talking about, where, you know, where the players came out and ripped Jay Cutler before knowing his exact injury was a perfect example. I mean, we, we don't know how severe that injury is. And until that's the case, it's hard to say exactly uh, what you should or shouldn't be saying about somebody. Yeah, and you know, it seems like any time a player makes a mistake, says something that they shouldn't have said on Twitter, they're just kidding. You know, it seems like yeah, that's uh, that's the new out. Reggie Bush was just kidding when yeah. he uh, said he liked to hang out on the beach and not work out, you know? And I don't know if that works the same for you. I don't think you can just come out if you make a mistake. You're too early on Twitter. You, you can't just say, oh, I was just kidding. But, uh, yeah, it doesn't, work for, it doesn't work for someone in my job, unfortunately. You, you mentioned that people uh, can be very harsh and and kind of rude on twitter how do you deal with it do you just block them or do you, do you address Everyone's them different. you know I, I mean i try you know listen everybody's entitled to their opinion so that, that's fine but if when it gets offensive uh and slanderous and incorrect yeah blocked i mean that's it I, you know you, you're not i mean you don't have to follow me and, and i don't have to have you follow me i mean you don't have to follow me and i don't have to have you follow me so if it's not working for you and it makes you angry, <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it. And allow me. So you do all these different things. You blog. You do interviews like this. You, you're on TV all the time. Uh, you're on the radio. What do you like to do the best? I like to work, period, whatever it is. I like to try to come up with information that people didn't know. I like to get stories out there that are interesting and uh, intriguing to people, uh, whatever that may be. That, that to me is... Uh, favorite part of my but I feel blessed to do what I do I love what I do uh, it's something that I've you know been proud to do and it's something that I've done since what uh, I was in college in the 1980s and you know reporting and writing and uh, again I feel very privileged to do what I do and, and I'm very thankful to have the job that I do well we were there very thankful to have you on the show it's Adam Schefter obviously you can find him on ESPN ESPN.com he has his Adam Schefter blog you can follow him on Twitter at Adam Schefter Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, Stephen, I appreciate you having me. Good luck to you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, quick, uh, quick book club update. I have finished the book of the month, The Captain, The Journey of Derek Jeter by Ian O'Connor. Uh, finished it last night all 377 pages or so of it. And here's my review. It, it's, a, it's an interesting book, and my, I really enjoy it, really enjoy it, up until the point when Alex Rodriguez becomes a Yankee. My problem with the book is from that part on, it's just too much Derek and Alex, Alex and Derek. Are they friends? Are they not friends? Do they get along? Do they, do they not? And I know that's a story, and I know it's relevant and deserved a spot in the book. I just don't know if it deserved 100 pages of the book. <laughs> you know, it just seems like at some point the book stops telling all these cool stories about uh, all of the cool things that have happened in Derek Jeter's life and just starts focusing on whether or not he gets along with Alex Rodriguez and whether or not he was a good captain to Alex Rodriguez. And... It just got a little kind of taxing near the end. And you know what's unbelievable? And as you read this, you realize the Yankees had a long drought without winning the World Series. Nine years, basically. They won the 2000 Subway Series and then didn't win the World Series again until 2009. 
and it just seems like that's impo- that was imp- that that's impossible. All of the wasted money, all of the bad picks, and when we do have Ian O'Connor on, it should be sometime in the next couple of weeks. It'll be interesting for him to say uh, how Brian Cashman survived. He's still the GM. So many failed signings: Kevin Brown and Carl uh, Pavano and Randy Johnson, and just I don't know. But here's the best part of the book. The best part of the book is when. There's a whole chapter, and it's called The Flip, and it really uh, focuses on Derek Jeter's incredible uh, flip play in Oakland and talks about the 2001 season uh, where the Yankees had to endure 9-11 and uh, made the run to Game 7 of the World Series with the two miraculous home runs in Game 4 and 5. And uh, I think he does a, Ian O'Connor does a really good job uh, kind of, uh, kind of going through that season, and that and that's the most fun I had reading the book was reading about that and reading about that cool flip play, and another cool thing to read about was uh, um, Derek's dive into the stands when he came out bloody against the Red Sox in the regular season game. Uh, so it's a good book. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed reading it. I wish maybe it was a little shorter, but you know what? I actually bought a copy of Tom Verducci's book called The Yankee Years, which was a book about Joe Torre that he wrote with Jim Tor- Joe Torre. And I just could never get into it. And I haven't finished it still to this day. But this book, I got into it. I got in a role. And I got cover to cover. And it's not an easy thing to do to get me to read a book cover to cover. Uh, but this was worth it. So check it out. It's the book of the month. And I think for next month, we are going to target... Uh, a book by a guy named Andrew Baggerly, who covers the San Francisco Giants. So we'll go to the West Coast to prevent East Coast bias. <laughs> Anything to add about the captain, Don? No, I think you covered it. All right. We will be right back with the debut of a new segment called 32 Teams, 32 Blogs. Our next guest lives in Toronto, Ontario, and is a graduate of the University of Western Ontario. He started covering baseball transactions for Major League Baseball trade rumors in 2008, and has contributed over 4,000 posts for the site. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Ben Nicholson-Smith. How are you doing today, Ben? Doing well. Thanks for having me on. Ah, thank you very much for, for uh, joining us. Kind of uh, an interesting baseball season so far. Um, Cleveland, did you expect this? I definitely didn't. I thought that they were going to be fourth or fifth in that division with the White Sox, Twins, and Tigers leading the way. So, I mean, you can count me among the many people who underestimated the Indians this year. How have they done it? Um, I think they've done it with some really good starting pitching, and they've done it with a big breakout season from a triple Cabrera. I think Shinsu Chu is heating up a little bit, so that's been nice for them. Uh, they've gotten something, not a lot, but they've gotten something from Grady Sizemore and Travis Hafner, and their bullpen's been pretty good. So overall, they've had a lot of pieces working, and the rest of the division is pretty awful. Yeah, very awful. 15-31 and 31 for Minnesota. Color me surprised on that as well. You? Oh, no question. I thought the Twins were going to be the 
a similar team to the one that's contended for playoff spots perennial and perennially and made the playoffs. I don't know how many times, but more often than not in the last few years. So I think it was a major surprise to see the Twins start off basically losing twice as many games as they're winning. And it basically boils down to the fact that Mauer has not been himself, Morneau has not been himself, Nathan has not been himself, Liriano, Pavano. You can keep going down the list, and the main contributors for the Twins have just not been themselves this year. Yeah, you know, it's really strange to see them struggling the way they have. One more question about that division. Uh, we had Joe Poznanski on a couple weeks ago. It was a couple weeks before the season, and uh, he mentioned that he thought the Royals weren't that far off, and they're right about the 500 mark right now. Um, obviously, the excitement with their big stud uh, youngster coming up and uh, making a little bit of an impact. How far off do you think the Royals are? Are they a team that can contend? in this division in the long run this year, or are they still a year or so away? I, I see that team as, as gearing up for 2012. I, I really don't think that they have the pieces to contend this year. I mean, you, you know, they have a record around 500, so we'll give them points for that, but it's not really worth that much in that division. And I think that you look at their recent record, they've really been struggling in the last week or 10 days. I think you look around the diamond for them, they've got some holes. I know they've been scoring runs like crazy this year, but overall, um, I think that some of those guys, whether it's Alex Gordon, whether it's Wilson Benamit, I think some of them will slow down. I think Osmer's for real, obviously. Mm-hmm. But if you're relying on, on Benamit and Gordon and Frank Cora to keep your offense going, I'm not sure that that's really a recipe for success. And on the pitching side, you have a bullpen that has a lot of promise. I really like their bullpen, and there's a lot to like about the arms uh, that Ned Yost has to call on late in games. But, you know, Jeff Francis, Sean O'Sullivan, Bruce Chen, Kyle Davies, that does not sound like a playoff rotation to me. No. So they've got to wait for their arms to develop. And once they do that, then I think they'll be ready to win the division or contend for the division year in and year out. The other two divisions in the American League are unbelievably bunched up right now. It looks like we're about uh, 46 to 50 games played, somewhere in that range. Uh, the AL East, the, the Red Sox have survived a bad start to make it all the way back to 25 and 22. Uh, Yankees 25 and 21, Tampa 26 and 22. Are those three teams going to fight all year for the two spots? Uh, can, can Toronto sneak in there and Baltimore to change a manager and they're going to be a little bit better I assume probably not going to compete in this division this year but how do you see the AL East playing out is that the toughest division really to uh to figure out at this point yeah it's a tough division to figure out I I think I think the NL East is also a tough division to figure out and I think that like you said a minute ago the three teams to watch are Boston, New York, and Tampa Bay. I mean, you look at what the Red Sox have done since starting out. I think it was 2-9. and nine. Uh, They've just been on fire, and that's still without much from Carl Crawford, who has really been, really been slumping for two months now, and that's enduring a lot, of, a lot of ups and downs from their rotation now with Lackey on the DL and Dice K joining them on the DL. So that team has a lot of question marks, but they've still managed to climb back above 500, and now they're three games above. And the Yankees, yes, they're a flawed team, but that offense can do a lot of damage. They've still got CC Sabathia, and despite the fact that they're probably not going to get anything this year from Rafael Soriano, they have a solid bullpen because Mariano Rivera is Mariano Rivera. And mm-hmm. I don't know how the Rays do it, but the Rays are always in the mix, and they have a lot of top-end talent, a lot of young guys who are still emerging, still 
developing. And unlike the Yankees and Red Sox, they, there is a ton of upside on that team with guys in their bullpen, with guys like Longoria and David Price, and you know, to a lesser extent, Wade Davis, who might develop into a number two starter this year. So there's a lot to like with all three of these teams, and I, I really do think it will be a three-horse race. You mentioned Kyle Crawford, and when we previewed the season, he was someone that we were kind of worried about kind of adjusting to the pressure of playing Major League Baseball. In Tampa Bay, maybe you can fly under the radar a little bit. In Boston, it's it's constant coverage, and he's struggled for two months now. Are you worried about him being one of those guys who just maybe can't handle the pressure of playing in a Boston? I, I'm not. I really don't want to buy in too much to these two months. I think that he is a much better player than this. Um, you know, I, I think that, yeah, you're worried, and there's definitely room to worry that maybe last year was a career year. Maybe he's more like the guy who put up a 718 OPS in 2008. But more often than not, you look at his track record, you look at what he's done ever since breaking into the league as, as a very young player. He's been very consistent, and maybe this year won't be one of his banner years, but they signed him for seven. And I, I think that by the time that that contract is up, They'll be looking back on it as maybe not some sort of bargain, but maybe it'll be like the J.D. Drew deal. And this, mm-hmm. this might really annoy some Red Sox fans, but J.D. Drew has been more or less productive over the course of his five-year contract. And, yeah, he's annoyed Red Sox fans, and, and they don't really love him, but he still plays good defense. He still contributes at the plate. He does a lot of things right. And so, overall, that contract has been worth it. And I think Crawford's might end up falling into a similar category. And, you know, J.D. Drew conveniently hit a grand slam in Game 7 in the ALCS, which uh, probably helped his contract value a little bit, too, a few years ago. One player I want to talk about in the American League East before we switch, switch gears a little bit uh, is Jose Batista. This guy is just out of his mind. Uh, how do... Are we past the point where we have to worry about there being some kind of performance-enhancing uh, thing going on here? Is it just a guy who got into the right situation and is just turned into one of the best players in baseball? Well, yeah. I mean, to address the, the second point first, he's definitely turned into one of the better hitters in baseball, really one of the better all-around players in baseball because – he runs the base as well. He's a cannon for an arm in right field that teams generally don't run against. And he has become, for what it's worth, one of the leaders in the Blue Jays team. So as far as performance-enhancing drugs, I think that that is unfair to bring up for Jose Batista because... He's slim, he right? Is, yeah. Pardon me? He, he looks like he always looked, right? I mean, it's not he's like he's going around with a 30-pound head. He, right. He's not a, a huge guy. And... and more than that, I mean, he is—he is subject to the same drug testing that every other major league player is. So, mm-hmm. if he has some miracle substance, then you know he—he he is the only one using it, and and other players like Manny Ramirez and others are failing drug tests in spite of it. So, I, I really. I think it's unfair to bring up. I think there's zero reason to believe that he's doing anything unnatural or or illegal. And uh, I, I'm just in awe of the guy. Yeah, incredible. I mean, to 54 home runs last year, I mean, right now he pretty much leads almost every significant offensive category except for runs scored. Uh, really an incredible story. Um, in the AL West, Texas is out with 25 and 23, but Oakland is only three games back, uh, slightly under 500. What's going on in this division? Are the Angels eventually going to take over? Or is it going to be Texas again? 
Uh, do you see Seattle and Oakland being a factor, or will they just kind of fade and it'll be a two-team race? You know, I, I really see it being a, a, probably a two-team race, but I think the Rangers are going to pull away. And you look at last night, what happened when Nelson Cruz and Josh Hamilton came back, they just look like a different team. And I think that you have Hamilton and Cruz hitting home runs again. Who knows how long it'll last? Both of these guys have had their, their demons injury-wise, and it's been hard for the Rangers to keep them on the field. But I, I think that when that team has those two guys in the lineup, plus Adrian Beltre, plus Ian Kinsler, I mean, you can go on and on. This team is very well-rounded. Uh, they've had their issues with the bullpen. Uh, Brandon Webb probably isn't going to contribute this year. Or, I mean, I, I shouldn't say that. But there is no indication that Brandon Webb can contribute at the major league level this year. So I, I think that, yeah, they have their flaws. But overall, that is an offense that can really get rolling. And if this team is healthy, I see them as the definite best team in the AL West. All right, let's look at the National League a little bit. You mentioned the National League East. Philly's obviously in first. Does Florida jump out as a team that surprises you with a 26-19 and 19 record at this point? They definitely surprise me. I didn't expect that from them. Yeah. I, I think that they're a good club. And if you had told me that at the end of May, Hanley Ramirez would be slumping and you know Dan Ugla's not on the team anymore, Mike Stanton's been okay but not amazing, I would be shocked to hear that they are in contention for the playoffs. But there they are, and you've you got to give it to the Marlins front office, which seems to put the pieces in place for that team to contend just about uh, every year. The Mets are a disaster. Uh, I know you've been uh, writing a little bit about Fred Wilpon on the site the last couple of days. Why don't you just give our listeners kind of an overview of what's going on with the Mets and the Fred Wilpon situation? Well, Fred Wilpon, who's the owner of the Mets, granted a couple interviews, one to Sports Illustrated and one to the New Yorker, and he was very candid about his team, his team's finances, and some of his team's stars. And in the process, he said that Jose Reyes was not going to get a Carl Crawford-esque contract. He said that Carlos Beltran uh, was paid on the basis of his one 2004 postseason series, mm -hmm. and he said that David Wright was a good player and a nice kid, but not a superstar. So you can imagine how that would really... <laughs> the plot in New York where lots of lesser things have generated lots of back page headlines. Yeah. It's almost Steinbrenner-esque, huh? No, it really is. And yeah. It's amazing because you'd think that he would want to go out there and, and encourage his fans to come out and watch the guys that he's put on his team. <laughs> Incredible. Well, we mentioned that Florida and Cleveland have definitely been surprises in the positive. We mentioned that uh, Minnesota was a surprise in the negative. Are there any other teams that jump out as big surprises to you either, either way, as a positive or a negative, in terms of how the season has went so far? You know, I'm not sure that the Padres are a surprise because they traded their best player this offseason, and they were probably not going to replicate the success that they had in 2010. But it... It is a little bit worse than expected. I mean, they're 10 games under 500. They're clearly not going to contend this year. It's probably going to be Heath Bell on the block, maybe a couple other players with him. And it's a complete turnaround from last year when this was the surprise team that everyone was buzzing about. And the, the worst of first story and Jed Hoyer doing such a good job as the general manager in his first year. But 12 months later, things have really changed, and it appears that the Padres are, are not going to be that kind of storybook story, book story for, uh, for 2011. The sportscasters are here with uh, Ben Nicholson-Smith of the really awesome website, www.majormlbtraderumors.com. You can also follow him on Twitter. He is at MLB 
T.R. Ben. Uh, a couple more questions before we let you go. Uh, we have been reading at the podcast. We've kind of been taking a look at the Captain, uh, a book written by Ian O'Connor about Derek Jeter. And w- my complaint about the book uh, is that it spends way too much time talking about the relationship between Derek Jeter and Alex Rodriguez. But I guess it's worth talking about a little bit. Where do you think Alec and Alex and Derek stand right now as they both kind of decline a little bit? And uh, Derek Jeter especially has really, really not been the same Derek Jeter the last uh, year and now uh, 50 games. He really hasn't. And it's, it's one of the one of the bigger issues for the Yankees this season and going forward, because he's under contract, of course, through 2013. So, yeah. you know, as for Jeter's relationship with Rodriguez, I'm not sure how that's going to evolve. As for Jeter's relationship with the Yankees, he's going to run into some, some tense moments with them. And I know that some have already happened. They've had to confront him about his defense, and, and more changes are presumably on the way. Because at some point, and this happens to all the great players in baseball, it happened to Ken Griffey Jr. last year, it happened to Tom Glavin a couple of years ago, and earlier this year we saw it with Jorge Posada. But these elite players can no longer perform at the elite level, and all of a sudden they have to be demoted or moved to a different position or put into a backup role. So it's, it's going to be tough, and it's tough for fans of the game because a lot of us have grown up watching Derek Jeter, rooting for him, rooting against him, whatever. We're used to him being an elite player, a difference maker, and he's used to that too. So there are probably going to be some clashes um, and, and even if there aren't clashes, there are going to be adjustments because at some point, Hall of Fame caliber players deteriorate, as you were saying, and they just become ordinary guys or bench players. Where else can Derek Jeter play if shortstop is, is eventually not going to be? I mean, obviously, Cal Ripken Jr. moved to third, but that's not an option on the Yankees because A-Rod's at third. Where, where can you put Derek Jeter? Where else is he going to be strictly a DH, or is there somewhere else? Can you play first base, maybe, left field? Where, what's another spot for him? I don't think you can have him as a DH because he's not hitting, and right. you've got to try to put him on the field somewhere. Um, if they decide to move him, and I think that that's a big if at this point, and it's not something that I've heard they're looking to do, but if they wanted to move him, they could move him to third base and then move A-Rod somewhere else, although I'm sure that that would create a whole set of problems in itself. You could put Jeter in left field. I've heard suggestions that he could go to center field. You're not going to put him at second base because Cano's there, but you know it is, it is in the distance, and it's not necessarily that far off, but the Yankees do have a little bit of time before they have to make that judgment call. And at this point, they're just hoping that he can turn it around with the bat. Yeah, I mean, 2009 is not that long ago. And obviously, he had a fantastic season in 2009. And I assume the Yankees are hoping that he can come close close to uh, what he did there. And uh, it's, it's kind of a, it's a disappointing situation because, like you said, we've all uh, spent a long time really admiring Jeter for for being the kind of guy he is. And I, and I kind of hope that maybe he can turn it around in the way that David Ortiz has in the last couple seasons when he started off so slow and looked like he might have to be replaced, but then picked it up and, and came close. But do you think Derek Jeter can even get to 270 like he hit last season? Yeah, I, I think he can. And, you know, the funny thing is, for, for all of the scrutiny around Jeter's offense, 
he is, when you look at him in relation to other shortstops in the American League, he's not that bad. I mean, you've got Estrubal Cabrera, who's been amazing. You've got Yanel Escobar, who's been pretty good. But other than that, you don't really have impact shortstops who are, who are hitting. So, you know, especially this year, offense is down again. You have to adjust your standards for Jeter, not only because he's deteriorating as a player, but because the league is changing and it's going to more of a defense-first approach, especially up the middle. So that's one thing to keep in mind with Jeter. 25 hits away from 3,000. It's going to be the first Yankee to ever hit 3,000 hits. Derek Jeter is a first ballot Hall of Famer and a great player, despite the fact that he's never won the MVP, correct? Absolutely, yeah. And you don't? Do you think that the lack of an MVP hurts his legacy at all? And do you think that he was? Un, do you know? Whenever I talk about Jeter at the, in the MVP, I think of 2006 and how unfortunate it was that a writer from Chicago found it to place him sixth. Because if he probably would have placed him a little closer, he probably would have an MVP. But of course, he lost out on that one to Justin Marno. But it, I mean, you don't think it hurts his legacy as one of the great Yankees, despite the fact that he doesn't have the MVP award. I really don't. I mean, I, I don't have the list in front of me, but there are only so many MVP awards to go around, and it, I'm, I guarantee there are dozens upon dozens of Hall of Famers who don't have an MVP award. And it's not necessarily to say that they weren't one of the best players in the game, but especially in Jeter's era, he was up against some serious power hitters. And you, you try winning the MVP award from Ken Griffey Jr. You know, when he had 56 home runs in 1997, or try winning it from... You know, uh, other power hitters. Yeah, uh, Alex Rodriguez. Yeah. You know, yeah. Alex Rodriguez, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. So uh, I, think that, I think that the consensus is that Derek Jeter is easily a first ballot Hall of Famer, and there might be some holdovers like there were in 06 who, who don't vote for him. But I wouldn't be surprised if he shatters the record for uh, most highest percentage of votes on the ballot. Last question. Uh, Albert Pujols is another guy who maybe hasn't gotten off to as great of a start as we expected. I kind of envision Albert Pujols as a guy maybe finishing his career as one of the greatest baseball players of all time. What do you th- how do you assess Albert Pujols, and where do you think his ceiling is in terms of one of the great players of all time? I, I think the same thing that you do. I mean, I, I compare him to many all-time greats going into the season, guys like Willie Mays and Mickey Mantle and... Uh, you know, Babe Ruth even. He's one of those all-time players. And I, I'm trying not to analyze these two months too much. I, yeah. I would, I'm tempted to go on the fan graphs and look at all the numbers, and I'm tempted to, you know, read every scouting report I can get my hands on. But m- more than anything, I'm just trying to avoid all of this and give the guy another four months. Because for the 10 years leading up to this, he was a historically good player. And I don't really... I'm not ready to believe that he's changed as a player. He still has more walks than strikeouts. He's still hitting a handful of home runs here and there. I want to give the guy the benefit of the doubt, see what he can do over the course of the full season, and then I'll adjust my my standards, my expectations for him. Awesome. The site is Major League Baseball Trade Rumors, MLBTradeRumors.com. It is Ben Nicholson-Smith. Again, you can find him on Twitter. He is at MLBTRBen. Correct? You got it. Thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. All right. We'll talk to you soon. I can just see Bo Jackson sprinting 
to the end zone. And the cheerleaders jumping up and down. And the guy says, <laughs> touchdown! But not for like a real team, right? Weren't they all fake teams back then? No, I think they were just called by the city's name. Right, right. right. They were just called Oakland. And they had all the gear. Yeah, I but think. not the logos, I don't think. Uh, yeah, you might be right about that. Yeah. And they didn't have every team. Like, no, they did not. Not until Super Tech Mobile. Right. But uh, this is the start of a new segment. It's something that we're not going to do necessarily every, we- every week, but it is something we're going to work on from now until we finish it. And we're going to call it 32 Teams, 32 Blogs. 32 Blogs, 32 Teams, either way. Uh, and what we're going to try to do is have someone on that runs a blog for each NFL team. Uh, blogs, blogs are fun. Blogs are cool. Uh, we like maintaining our blog. We like reading other blogs. Uh, some blogs have come into, turned into multi-million dollar businesses. Um, I know Deadspin and The Big Lead uh, come to mind as sports blogs that have turned into pretty big cash cows. Isn't that how, uh, what's his name, uh, the fantasy guy on ESPN, isn't that how he got a job? Yeah, absolutely. I believe you're right about that. And Matt Barry. Yeah, Matt Barry. And I think Bill Simmons, he started out writing basically a sports blog for AOL Sports, I believe. Right. Uh, but... We're going to start off today with the Detroit Lions. I don't know why we picked the Lions first, uh, but it's a really cool site called the Lions in Winter, and uh, I did a really cool interview with uh, the main man, Ty, over there, and uh, hopefully you guys enjoy it. And, um, you know, if you have a particular blog that you enjoy more than another or one that you think is really outstanding for a certain team, don't be afraid to shoot us an email at thesportscasters at gmail.com. Uh, I've been searching around. Hopefully, I think the next one we're going to do is the Jets. I've been talking with someone at uh, a Jets blog, and we'll we'll focus on that more when it comes. But definitely shoot us a line if there's a, a favorite NFL team you have that is associated with a favorite blog, and uh, hopefully we can work it out. But here it is, 32 teams, 32 blogs, the Lions in winter. Hope you enjoy it. With the 13th pick in the 2011 NFL Draft, the Detroit Lions select Nick Fairley, defensive tackle, Auburn. Our next guest is from Lansing, Michigan. He attended Michigan State University and is the flame keeper for the Lions in winter. He also writes a little bit at scout.com. And he is the first representative in our new series, 32 Teams, 32 Blogs. A very warm sportscaster's welcome to Ty Shelter. How are you doing today, Ty? Hey, I'm doing awesome, Stephen. Thanks for the intro. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm it's excited a, to be on. It's exciting to have you on. I don't know why I chose the Lions first. It's just the Lions are very interesting to me. Uh, for one, because everyone loves their draft, and I assume you're of the same mindset. Tell me a little bit about what you thought of the Lions draft this year, and uh, how you think yeah. the new players will fit in with uh, with what has been building so far. And it seems like. 
just to, to preface it, the Lions drafts never seemed to make sense for a while there, and now it seems like they make a ton of sense. So it's a big change, I guess. Yeah, and you know, it's it's funny because we're kind of seeing a lot of heads starting to turn. This draft is really starting to to tap people into what the Lions are doing. Um, they're kind of becoming the the it girl of the franchises this off season now, um, and a lot of people are are really starting to get excited about what they're building. Um, it's interesting because the Lions fans, I think, thought they had a pretty good handle on what the Lions' needs were uh, based coming off of last season and the talents that were going to be available, at, especially with the first pick. Um, and I think fans thought they had a pretty good idea of who was going to go where and, and who the Lions were going to end up with. And then on the morning of the draft, um, Rick Gosselin of the um, – uh, Dallas was the morning star. Yep. Uh, he comes out with a fantastic mock draft every year. He was the first person to attach Nick Fairley as, uh, to the Lions, and that was the morning of the draft. And Lions fans were passing around going, really? What is he on? Like, I, you know, is he, how would Fairley even fall that far? And, and, and a tackle? We've already got, you know, three good ones, uh, and, and two of them are quite young. So, I, man, that really? And and we kind of had a, you know a little while to chew on it, and then that evening, sure enough, it, that's exactly how it played out. Um, and it took about three seconds, I think, for everyone to go. You know, actually, that's really awesome. Yeah. And so everybody kind of turned their flipped the switch, and 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 fans really started to get excited thinking about the possibilities, um, both. You know, this season for the, I mean, there's going to be a million different ways Lions can rotate him in um, with the rest of the defensive line. And it'll actually free them up to use Ndamukong Sue a bunch of different ways. Um, he actually played, Sue played almost every single snap last season, um, and almost all of them in the, you know, in the same position. Um, and so this will let him be a little fresher later and also maybe move around a little bit more. Um, just lots of, lots of interesting combinations and possibilities. So um, that's cool both for now and for down the road. You know, having uh, Sue and Fairley, um, whether it's relieving each other or playing next to each other or whatever for the next four or five years, I, the, the possibilities are, are mind-blowing. And then, um, then they went wide receiver and then traded back up into the second round to get a running back, um, which means this is the second year in a row they've traded up to get a running back. Um, and I think last year everyone was expecting it, um, but this season um, I don't think that was on anybody's mind. Uh, I, thought, I think you know, the need to the back seven uh, outside linebacker is basically two huge question marks, um, and then people were expecting at least one cornerback to get drafted. Um, and instead they went, you know, defensive tackle, running back, wide receiver. Uh, or, I'm sorry, wide receiver, running back. Right, um, and Young. Both, yeah, And so, you know, I, that kind of threw me for a loop. Uh, I was at the Hard Rock Cafe where the Lions were having a, a second and third round draft watch party. And they actually flew for the 24 hours or so that there was no lockout. They actually flew fairly to Detroit. He was there at the Hard Rock Cafe for the watch party. Awesome. Sign yeah, signed autographs, meet and greet. He had me sign my little boy's autograph ball, you know, that sort of thing. It was really cool. And when they announced Titus Young, you know, everybody kind of went, 
huh? Who? <laughs> right. Boo. Yay. Wide receiver. What? Huh? <laughs> I mean, you know, he wasn't on anybody's radar. Um, good player, but, though. Oh, no. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, good player, though. Maybe, oh, yeah. 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 And he's thrown himself completely into being a lion. You know, on, on Twitter and, uh, you know, any any interview, uh, he's just, he, he went out and bought a lion's jersey and a lion's hat, like, that day i mean you know he's 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 completely thrown himself into into detroit into the lions and and you know it's interesting because he everybody knew the lions were probably going to look for a wide receiver and or a running back they're thinking more fourth fifth round so long story short instead of having a draft where the lions tried to fill some needs by reaching for guys where they needed them in the second third fourth fifth round instead they got three in, three impact guys who are going to contribute right away. And uh, I, I like that better. I'd rather have three players who are definitely going to be part of the now and part of the future than a bunch of guys that may or may not contribute over the next few years. What do you think the running back selection says about what the Lions think about Javid Best? Is it that you just need more than one running back? Is it that they're concerned about his toe, or is it just... Because Javid Best started the year, and he, he looked like he was going to be fantastic, and he, he kind of slowed down there for a little bit, and I don't know where he stands in terms of uh, the depth chart and what this selection in the second round might do. Yeah, well, and it's it's interesting because the Lions were insistent last year that they thought that Best could be the primary back. Um, and in the preseason, he ripped everyone to shreds and, and looked great running between the tackles. Um, and then, obviously, you know, uh, he, he had a couple of really big games, especially catching the ball in yep. the first couple of weeks. But he had the first turf toe, I believe, in the first week and then got turf toe in the other foot um, a few weeks thereafter. And it, it obviously took a ton out of him. And uh, most people were questioning why they didn't just fit him. You know, he, he clearly didn't have that burst. And there also weren't any holes up the middle for him, and he was just running up into the back of his line over and over. Uh, so I, I don't think they see, you know, well, he's just he's just no good anymore. Let's draft Mikel Shore. I think they definitely see Best as sort of the 1A going forward, and he's going to be, I think, more useful and more dangerous on passing downs. Uh, and really the Lions are going to be a pass-first team. Uh, you know, Stafford all the wide receivers they have, all the tight ends they have, and that offensive line is built to protect the passer more than it is built to, to open up holes. So I think it's, it's sort of a combination. They want to have the dynamic of someone who can run hard between the tackles like LaShore. Um, but even then, uh, you know, LaShore hit a lot of home runs uh, at Illinois. He has that the second gear and the ability to get into the second level. Uh, so I think they, they are going to be able to spell each other back each other up and and yeah i think there is a little bit of an insurance policy if you know best for whatever reason keeps having these uh, you know kind of freak injuries happen to him because that was a, there was some uh, you know uh, concern about that coming out of california that he seems to weird injuries seem to find him uh that that lashore will also be able to to carry the load um so i think you'll see kind of a 60 40 uh, with best in the lead and more on third down. Um, but LaShore will definitely get some work too. It's interesting from afar, Matt Stafford seems like exactly the guy you would want to lead your team into the future. 
seems like a great leader, seems tough. I know he opened everyone's eyes in that game against the Browns where he oh, yeah. had that one oh, yeah. pass left in him. And it's just when you see things like that, you get just you just get so pumped up because sometimes as a fan, it can be frustrating. You feel like almost you care more than the players do. But when you see a player who shows the guts that Stafford did that day, it remind it, it just gets you so pumped up to back the guy. And uh, I, I just wonder what you think about Stafford's development, and is he really re- ready to take the next step this year and become one of the more elite quarterbacks in the league as opposed to just being uh, one of the quarterbacks who could be one of the elite quarterbacks in the league? Uh, well, it's it's so great that you brought that that Browns game up from his rookie season. You know, Lions fans have been refreshing that video. Uh, it's like a junkie looking for a fix for about two years. Yeah, it's a cool uh, you know, thing. The, 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 especially the mic'd up version oh. that they put on NFL Network. Yeah. On, I mean, oh, that's 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 amazing. That's every football fan's dream to have a guy like that uh, leading your team. That that kind of performance is, I mean, oh man, makes you want to stand up and salute with like a single manly tear rolling down your right. eyes. And it makes you want to buy tickets. You know, that, that's yes. the kind of guy you want to pay to see. It makes you feel good about, you know, spending the money. Yeah, definitely. I, I ran out and I got a, a Stafford authentic home Jersey and, and still, uh, you know, I, I, so that should answer your question. I, I do believe um, that he is the future. And I know um, just from, you know, talking to people, that the, that the Lions are, are absolutely convinced that they hit gold with him. Um, obviously, uh, the in- inability to stay on the field last year was, was a big concern, but even in the short time that he had, you know, he threw uh, six touchdowns to one interception, um, and, and just uh, he just absolutely looks the part. You know, when, he, when he's playing, he's playing really, really well, and he, he has the look of that guy that's going to be a huge difference maker. Um, and and that's why it's so hard to get. It's so hard to not get really excited about this season, uh, because this, the Lions managed to struggle to to six and ten, mostly without him, um, and and then you add in, uh, you know, Fairley and Lashore and Young, and then you get Stafford back if he can give you a healthy sixteen games. I you, playoffs. I would for me. I, that's a minimal expectation. I I definitely think that. He's, he's going to make a huge swing in the bottom line in terms of wins and losses for this team. When I talked to Peter King last week, he mentioned that he thought the line, if he were the Lions, he would definitely take a run at, jeez, um, uh, I'm going to forget his name, the, the Oakland defensive back. At Namdi. Yeah, Namdi Asimov, right. Yeah. Uh, do, what a great fit that would be, right? Do you think there's a chance? Is, have you heard anything? Uh, I, I know it's it's a strange time because – Free agents are just kind of out there flapping in the breeze right now, but that that seems to make sense, right? That would be a great part uh, to kind of fill in and kind of really get this team ready to make a run. You know, he would be, um, and you know, there was uh, it was said after the fact that the Lions uh, called Arizona about moving up to get Patrick Peterson. Um, right. It's no it's no secret that cornerbacks a big need for the Lions and Chris Houston. Um, is coming off a he's you know fifth year guy, so he's in that limbo of depending on how the lockout gets resolved. If they go under last year's rules, he's a restricted free agent. If they go under the rules before, you know he's an unrestricted free agent. Right. So if he's unrestricted, I'm not sure that the Lions are going to want to pay 
full market price for him. I don't know. I can't, you know, I can't say that for sure either way. Um, but he's definitely going to be looking to, to, to make that money. Um, and, and, uh, the Lions have always had, you know, Martin Mayhew has this strict policy of the right player at the right price. So, you know, if, if he doesn't think that Namdi, who I believe is 30 as we speak, um, is going to be worth whatever he's going to ask for three or four years, um, then, then he simply won't go there no matter how bad the need is. Um, and it, it's funny, the example that I like to point out is uh, Larry Foote, uh, the Steelers' inside linebacker, um, they kind of let the Steelers kind of let Larry Foot know they're going to try and trade him, and if they couldn't find a partner, they'd let him go. So they called the Lions, who were looking for an inside linebacker two years ago, and said, "You know, well, we'll give you, you know, we'll give you Foot for a sixth round pick." And Mayhew said, "No way, seventh round pick." And Steelers were like, "Well, no, we want a sixth. And Mayhew said, "No, he's not worth a sixth, huh. even though the need was really great." So finally, they came to a stalemate, and the Steelers said, "Fine, we'll just cut him then." And they cut him and the Lions signed him. That same sixth-round pick was the pick that they traded to get Chris Houston, who's now the number one cornerback. Wow. So, uh, you know, he's, he, Mayhew will stand firm and stand firm and stand firm on not going one penny over what he believes the player's value is, no matter how bad the need is. Um, so that's I, – I don't know that the Lions are going to pursue Namdi, but it – all, otherwise, besides that, the situation is perfect. It's it's the perfect fit. Um, they need cornerback help. He's the best, if if not the best, than than one B. Right. Cedric 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 and, and a good fit for the schemes, physical. So, you know, yeah, it'd be it'd be amazing. But the the Lions' approach has been to build from the defensive line out, or not even to build from the defensive line out. Just build the defensive line and keep building the defensive line right. <laughs> while you build up the offense. So. I can't say for sure whether the Lions will pursue him, but would it be a great fit? Absolutely. You know, uh, uh, it's funny. I'm a big hockey guy, and a couple of years ago, awesome. A couple of years ago, I was, I was thinking about uh, how, oh man, I'm so jealous. I wish I was Washington, who had, uh, you know, Backstrom, um, Salmon, Ovechkin, and Green, all in this young age. And I look at the Lions roster, and it reminds me of that with. Sue, mm-hmm. Sue, and uh, Pettigrew, and Stafford, and Johnson, and Fairley. Wow, there's a lot of talent there. A lot of young is, talent. Yeah. And Javid Best, and uh, wow, just uh, it's, it's going to be a good time to be a Lions fan. And I guess, I guess it's it's well worth it based on how long uh, you guys have had to struggle out there. Tell me a little bit about the blog, uh, the Lions sure. in Winter. What what gave you the idea? Uh, to start the blog, uh, what, what do you try to do with the blog, and uh, how have people responded to it? Sure. Um, well, you know, I uh, back, you know, because when I was in college, I was in, you know, I came to Michigan State in like 1999, and I was in the dorm, the first dorm that had straight up internet that went straight from the dorm out through MSU's backbone. So I had basically unlimited internet that was faster than any server could feed stuff to me. So I spent a lot of time online on forums and message boards um, because that's all there was for football talk at the time, really, online. And uh, that's just, I just kind of kept that going. I was members of all these different forums and message boards and, you know, what have you, uh, kind of fighting the good fight for the Lions. Um, you know, with, with Lions fans, because 
they've been so somewhere between so mediocre and so bad for so long. Um, you know, there's there's sort of hardened, you know, optimists versus pessimists. Like, are you are you buying what the Lions are selling this year, or are you the kind of guy that's going to go every game and boo them and tell them they're lousy bums until they get good? <laughs> you know, and right. and so there's all these. You know, I was having these same arguments over and over, and you know, uh, it kind of started to lose its appeal. And I was like, you know, I wish, I, you know, I should spend all this time that I spend just goofing around on the football internet and make it build it into something. You know, I should I should do something lasting, something that I can point to and be like, here's why I'm doing this. You know, here's and 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 make an impact instead of having the same arguments with the same people on you know in various forums and whatnot, you know. Um, and so then I kind of sat on that idea for a little while <laughs> because <laughs> you know good ideas never uh, quite percolate right when you think about them. Uh, and it was really not until the Lions went zero and sixteen. It was the day after they lost the sixteenth game. I woke up that morning. And I went into my car, and it was, even for the, you know, beginning of January, or it was late December, it was, even for that, it was really, really, really cold. Um, and uh, it was like 10 below or something that morning. And I, I couldn't even get my car started. And I was sitting there turning the key and turning the key, and finally it turned over. I was just, and sports talk, the local sports talk radio came on. They're talking about the Lions. And, of course, I was all interested, and I was thinking about calling in. And I was like, what? God, why do I care about this team? It just went oh and sixteen. They are officially the worst team ever in the history of the world at anything. And yet here I am the next day, you know, the very next day, and I'm back. You know, I'm listening to this sports, and I feel I'm still involved. I'm still wrapped up. I still care about this team. Why? And I was like, you know what? I've been putting it off. To, I need to start that blog. So I just I grabbed a blogger account and signed up and just started typing, you know, um, and I kind of passed it around a couple of the forums and uh, got a lot of positive response. So I just kept doing it. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I kind of write what I wish someone else would write. You know, I write what I want to read right. about the Lions. Um, and sometimes, sometimes it's got a really broad appeal and really hits a, hits a chord. And sometimes it's, I'm off in my own, <laughs> I'm off in my own world. You know, sometimes I've really focused on being really like really focusing on the writing itself, you know, and right. then trying to write really good. And then other times I go really deep into like statistical analysis and like data visualization and stuff. Um, and you know, different, different sets of people really spawn, really respond to each of those things differently. Um, but I always just try and keep up to keep coming up with, you know, what do I wish was getting written? What do I, what would I like to read about the lions? And and then that's what I do. Um, so it's, it's been, there's been really good response, really positive response. And, um, you know, the, the subset of passionate lions fans who are on the internet, who are interested in like, really overwritten stuff or really highly analytical data work is pretty small, but fanatical. And, uh, you know, the readers and commenters and, and people in the industry, people elsewhere in the sports blog world, um, people also in the sports media industry have been really, uh, enthusiastic and supportive and it's, it's really kept me going. Um, so I've, I've, I've done it. It's, it's a labor of love. It's a labor of passion, you know, and, and, 
I do it if nobody was reading, but I'm glad that people are reading, I guess, is what I'd say. Has the lockout discouraged you at all? And if not, do you think the longer it drags on, the more likely you would be to maybe distance yourself from this labor of love? Or is football um, just that much in our, you know, in our blood as Americans that it just doesn't matter, and when they come back, we'll be there? No, you know, I actually really dig into... Uh, the lockout. Obviously, I want it over, yeah. uh, but it, it, it's actually provided me with something else I can really dig into because, um, you know, when I went to Michigan State, I went there to study political theory um, and basically got, I dipped a toe in the world of politics and realized it wasn't what I wanted at all. But I did get to learn how to read a, uh, a judicial decision. <laughs> so uh, you're getting all these briefs and stuff. I get to geek out a little bit as all these lawyers shoot stuff back and forth, uh, you know, and, and delving into the judge's decisions. I can, I can kind of break that down into layman's terms. A Did little you bit. read all 90 um, pages of the, of the first judge's ruling? Yes, I did. <laughs> nice. Yes, I did. And I wrote about, I wrote about 3000 words trying to break down all 92 pages into, into layman's terms, so to speak. So it was, you know, it, it's given me something else I can dig my teeth into, um, but I'd, I'd much rather have it, I'd much rather have it be over with. Um, so so it, it's been kind of a double-edged sword. Um, it keeps our, our football away, and we haven't had OTAs to talk about or mini camps to talk about, and pretty soon we're not even going to have training camp. Um, to talk about, um, but I've I've just kind of thrown myself into okay if this is if the football we have to analyze is is courtroom football, as they say over at the National Post, uh, nationalfootballpost.com, um, then that's then that's what I'll analyze. That's what I'll get into, you know. So I've I've actually been able to to get a little bit into that, um, even though I've been detesting it the whole way. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you mentioned some other interests. You know, obviously, you, you told me you consider yourself a, tech, a techie. Are you an Apple guy or are you a PC guy? Well, it's funny you say that because I used to be a huge hardcore PC guy. Um, mm. you know, I used to, to hate Macs and, and um, I got into Linux and, and using that. Um, and slowly as I've gotten older, my opinion on that has has flipped around. Number one, Apple switched to using um, a, a variant of Linux. So I can actually drop down to like the command line and do what I do actually for a living. I do uh, database development um, and I do a lot of coding on old old school mainframes and stuff. So I can actually now on a, on a Mac drop down to the hardcore just words on a screen and, and, and get into my, get into the, the down and dirty. So I, I really enjoy that. And then the other thing is now that I'm, you know, I'm turning 30 this year, I got three kids, you know, it used to be a labor of love to go find, Oh, well like this driver works with this release <laughs> of the operating system, but don't apply that patch. And then, you know, if you actually, if you get this, you know, video card, then you'll want to apply this, like, you know, hack patch, group and you want to tweak this and that and then you know you can pretty much get it working almost as good as if you just like paid money for the thing that works right the first time <laughs> you know yeah, and exactly. so it, it, it's it's kind of come around where i can really appreciate the beauty of having everything that just works the first time like here this is this this is my iphone 
this is my Mac Pro. I plug it in. It syncs. It works. I go, I post on my blog. I do whatever. I have like three or four, you know, I got virtual machines running and sessions running. So it's like I can, I can really geek out, but I can also – you know, just go, okay, you know what? It's Give me the work. idiot thing. Right. Give me the big icons that I can just push and have it do what I want. <laughs> you know? So, so, so you, that's where I stand. Do you have an iPad? Uh, my wife has an iPad, Your yeah. wife has an iPad, so, okay. So what... Yeah, she... Oh, yeah. Uh, I was just going to ask you, are there any apps that you use, um, maybe on your... You said you had an iPhone or on the iPad that uh, mm-hmm. help you with the blog? Um, I know there's uh, Blogsy which I, I've been using on the iPad. It's pretty nice, but just wondering if you have any experiences with any interesting uh, apps. Oh, well, um, I do have uh, these uh, blog press on my iPhone, um, which is, that's, that's really cool. I actually live blog the Hard Rock Cafe event um, with photos and video um, from my iPhone 4. Uh, which that was that was really cool to just be able to like okay cool here's the pick okay cool like I took a video of the TV broadcast of them announcing the Titus Young pick and kind of panned around the crowd and then boom posted it right to the blog which kind of just kept updating the same post um, so that was cool um, and then on the the Mac uh, I have a Mac Pro um, and I do my because um, I have a podcast uh, the Fireside Chat that I do during the regular season mostly mm-hmm. like. Like late Sunday night after the games, I basically do like a reaction. I do I broadcast that live, um, so I have people on the chat room. I just kind of like take reactions. I can produce the podcast on the Mac Pro. I can blog from the Mac Pro, and I can sync and pick up and drop off all the the pictures and stuff. And I use a Blogo is the the program that I use on the Mac um, to do to do the blog posts. Um, so that's have that having that all be seamless, and I can take it either way. You know, I can sync it back and forth seamlessly. That that's really cool, really helpful. Okay. And if, uh, oh, yeah. Go oh, ahead. no, I was just going to, I just wanted to reset. It's the Sportscasters here uh, with Ty from thelionsinwinter.com. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter. Uh, he is at lionsinwinter, pretty simple. Uh, like I said, the blog is www.thelionsinwinter.com. Anything else you need to plug just as we reset here? Uh, no, um, I do have a couple, you know, like I, I'm always on Twitter. I'm, I'm deep in the Twitter streets. Yeah. The, 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 the tweet treats. I don't know. Um, so I'm on, I'm on Twitter at lions in winter. Um, so you can always, you can always find me there. Uh, a couple questions about the Red Wings before we go. Uh, we disappointed yeah. in how the season ended or were you happy with the way they battled back there? Almost pulling off the, uh, Oh, three to four, three thing. Um, where do you think the future is? A couple of the stars are getting a little bit older. Uh, mm-hmm. Where do you think the Lions go from here, or the uh, Red Wings go from here? <laughs> well, um, you know, I, obviously, you know, um, I thought we were in for a replay of, of last season um, with uh, having the Sharks uh, close us out early. And, and to see the way the team battled back um, was, was really heartening. Um, it was stuff I, I, I almost think in the last game, they just ran out of bodies. Um, yeah. you know, uh, Franz, Franzen was hurt. Um, I, I will always be questioning, um, the wisdom of not having Madano available for the last game. Uh, since then, obviously, uh, you know, they lost, uh, Bertuzzi, they lost Cleary, both to concussions. Um, and, and, and by the end, you know, all the lines were a patchwork and they were going, they were going all out. I mean, they, they left nothing to chance you can't you can't 
Bingham for effort. Um, and uh, that's who, I mean, on mostly one wrist, uh, pulled off Nasty. maybe the nastiest backhand yeah. goal I've ever <laughs> Unbelievable. seen. Unbelievable. Yeah. Amazing effort. Um, but I've been, I've been kind of grumping about the lack of talent and youth on the blue line for several years. Um, you know, Cronwall has, has been inconsistent as to where, whether he's just a, a, you know, highlight reel hit guy, uh, that makes a lot of mistakes. Um, he stepped it up big in the playoffs this season. Um, but then, um, Erickson, who I think the, the wings have been counting on to be sort of the future at the top pair, um, take a step back after a step back. And now it seems as though, I've, uh, Brian Rafalski is going to retire. Um, yeah, he so, said that today, I think, right? Rafalski? Yeah. Yeah. So, and Lidstrom know, can't no be that Rafalski. far off. Right. No. And it's, it's been up in the, I mean, it was up in the air last year, um, whether he was going to come back or not. And so now if, if Lidstrom and Rafalski, um, retire, now you're looking at, you know, a defense that was kind of falling apart a little bit. Um, Anyway, now you're looking at making you know the, the second pair your top pair, and and nobody really to <laughs> and nobody else right. really to to promote up from from within. So they're going to have to make some kind of move. Um, and you know, I guess the only bright side of Rafalski retiring is because he signed the contract before he was 35. If I remember this right, how the NHL cap works, I believe his six million comes up free under the cap. So they'll they'll have some money to spend. Um, uh, but I. I Rafalski retiring could kick off the the full official youth movement, you know, changing of the guard, um, and 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 really they've gotten a lot of their production um, from the younger players anyway. Um, so maybe we'll see a little a little slightly grittier, slightly scrappier, maybe not as many points in the regular season Red Wings team that uh, probably won't go any. Any less far in the playoffs in the second round next year? Depending, I mean, obviously it all depends. And I have infinite faith in Ken Holland, who I maintain is the best GM in sports. So we'll just we'll just wait to see what surprises he has for us. I guess. Have you heard or know anything about the development of Tommy McCollum? Uh, he's a Buffalo boy, first round pick of the Red Wings a few years ago. Uh, he did make it in a game. I'm pretty sure this year, and I'm pretty sure he got lit up in that game. Uh, yeah, but uh, do you know anything about his development where he stands right now? No, and honestly, I don't follow the the minor league hockey as tight. I get so during the NFL season, yeah. I'm so wrapped up in what's happening NFL wise that Absolutely. really it's kind of like, okay, the instant the Pro Bowl is over, now that the Pro Bowl is in front of the Super Bowl, the instant the Super Bowl is over, then it's like time for the okay, hockey, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So in a lot of cases, some some of the nitty gritty and especially the minor league development following the prospects, I just don't get a chance to do just because all my spare time gets thrown into the blog and the Lions. So no, unfortunately, I don't have an update on that. But I'm sure I'll be uh, I'm sure I'll be learning, especially if uh, there's <laughs> no football anytime soon. Right. So you are you said you're turning thirty. So let's see, you're probably born in what 1981. Is that right? That's right. So you, That's right. in 1987, you were only five, huh? So I'm guessing you did not go to WrestleMania three. No, I did not go to WrestleMania three, but that did not prevent me from reenacting it in the basement of my babysitter's house with her kids and all the other kids being babysat many, many times. Definitely the coolest <laughs> event of all t- wrestling event of all time in my mind is WrestleMania three. Ninety three thousand one hundred seventy three. 
uh, people allegedly were there that day. And uh, yes. I don't know if you noticed this, but I did a blog the other day. Uh, not not that did you notice the blog, but there are now 14 dead participants from WrestleMania 4. Can you believe that? Girl Monsoon, wow. Joey Morella, Hercules, The Haiti Kid, Little Beaver, Junkyard Dog, Fabulous Mula, Dino Bravo, Adrian Adonis, Davy Boy Smith, Frankie the Bird, uh, The Macho Man, Miss Elizabeth, and Andre the Giant, all dead participants of WrestleMania wow. 3. Incredible, huh? Wow, that's that's amazing. Um, and a Deadspin has a, a feature they call uh, Dead Wrestler. Yeah, isn't week. that so cool? I was just checking out the Randy Savage one. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, the, who, the guy they just credit him as the masked man. Whoever does that is uh, amazing. Not only a great writer, but incredible historian uh, of wrestling. And, you know, I, I got to admit that, you know, after after the sort of 80s heyday, early 90s, you know, I more or less stopped paying attention same to, here. to pro wrestling. Yeah, but, same here. You know, but at, at, at the time, I was, I was huge into it. So, um, you know, just go, going to read through these, reading all the history, even the stuff that I wasn't really aware of being, being as young as I was at the time. Um, so, yeah, definitely must read stuff and go back and, you know, I'm sure they've done, I know they've done a, uh, a piece on several of the names you mentioned. Um, I particularly enjoyed the one they did on Captain Lou Albano uh, a few months ago, so, or, you know, last year. So that was, uh, that's always, uh, that was actually, honestly, that was like my second or third thought was, oh man, the This Week in Dead Wrestlers <laughs> on <laughs> piece on, on Randy Savage is going to be amazing. And it was, and it was. You know, I got a. It's interesting you say that. I'm gonna have to try to find out if they did a Dino Bravo one because when I was researching for the blog that I wrote, he has the most bizarre death. Like he was shot 17 times by someone who was allegedly in his apartment while he was watching a hockey game uh, because he crossed some mafia types who were involved in some kind of cigarette smuggling. So I wonder if they have any more information on that. But a very fascinating death for uh, Canadian strongman Dino Bravo. They wanted to make wow. sure he was dead, I guess, pumping 17 bullets into him. <laughs> that is crazy. That yeah. is but all right, the sportscasters, we want to thank you very much, Ty, for joining us again. It is the Lions in winter, the first of the 32 Teams 32 blog segment. Make sure you find Ty on Twitter. He is at Lions in winter. Thanks a lot for joining me, buddy. It's a good time. Absolutely. Much appreciated, Stephen. Had a blast, man. Yeah, we'll do it again soon uh, when the season gets going. And. Uh, Let's see. Do the Lions and Saints play this year? I don't think they do, do they? So I'm a big Saints guy. So I don't think we play each other. And do the Lions play the Bills? My my partner, he's a big Bills guy. I don't think that happens either. Last Last year, year, that was last year. Yeah, last year. Years ago, of of course, uh, we played the game where uh, all the Madden 11 screens came from. You can't go through Madden 11 without seeing the Saints poning the line. <laughs> oh, yeah. And Breeze had, that was opening day. Breeze had the six touchdown passes and yeah, yeah that, that got ugly. Hard. Yeah, that got <laughs> ugly. But uh, that was the start of our Super Bowl season. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was. the Super Bowl team that, that did it. So, you can, you can uh, it makes you feel better. I mean, at least when I won the Super Bowl, it's not like it was, you yeah. know, a four-win team who did that to you on opening day. All right, but we will talk soon for sure. It was a good time. Thanks a lot, buddy. Definitely. Likewise. Thanks, man. See you. Yep. Hello. 
this is Tammy, and you're listening to my boyfriend Steve on the Sportscasters. And, oh yeah, Don's on it too. Alright, one last segment, episode number 21 of the Sportscasters. A lot of people to thank. Uh, first, I want to thank uh, Mr. Bill Hoffheimer from ESPN, the direct, Senior Director of Communications. He helped us set up the interview with Adam Schefter. I want to thank him for that. Also want to thank Adam Schefter for joining us. Also want to thank Ben Nichols-Smith for joining us from MajorLeagueTradeRumors.com. Enjoyed that spot very much. And uh, also like to thank Ty from the Lions in Winter, who was the guinea pig uh, to start our 32 Teams, 32 Blogs segment. In the future, next week, episode number 22, we are lucky enough to be joined by James Miller, who... Do me a favor. Don't pay attention to all this other stuff he's doing because he's pretty much everywhere, you know, and I I, I don't want everyone to be bored with him by the time he gets to (laughs) us next week, you know, so uh, don't pay any attention to him. Uh, But no, Jimmy Miller is going to be on to talk about his book. Uh, Those guys have all the fun. It's been it's been talked about all over the place. I heard him on Scott Van Pelt today. He did a great job. Yeah, like I was saying, even uh, what's his name? Daniel Tosh tweeted about the book so yeah so we're gonna have him on next week that's gonna be very cool uh the following week alex belth is gonna join us again from the bronx bombers blog that he runs he's gonna talk a little bit about the yankees a little bit about this crazy ian o'connor book also that day we're gonna have jimmy trainer he is from si.com if you ever check out hot clicks he is the guy that organizes all that should be a really fun guest and Ian o'connor should be with us very shortly to talk about the book, also a uh, new book club of the month announcement, probably next week, as I'm done reading, so I'm ready for something new. And uh, other than that, it's time for pick four. Now, pick four has been terrible, and uh, unfortunately, it did not improve last week. <laughs> uh, I won the week at two and two, winning the Giants over the Athletics four to nothing. Tim Winsicum uh, pitched a gem for me. I also won the Canucks over the Sharks easily seven to three. I lost the Bulls over the Heat in the game of the week, 96-85, to 85, and just missed, again, just missed my bold prediction. The Yankees won two of three, did not sweep the Mets. Uh, Don, on the other hand, went one in three, uh, winning only the game of the week, picking the Heat over the Bulls, 96-85. It's a good thing you, you took the Heat and didn't just, you know, pick the Bulls because we hate them. To hate or the heat, the heat right. right? You would have went 0-4. Yeah, that'd been ugly. Uh, yeah, but uh, Boston, he lost on Boston. He picked Tampa Bay, but Boston won two to nothing. Uh, he picked the Thunder, but the Mavs won ninety-three to eighty-seven, and the Sharks did not get swept. So they sure didn't. No, they're giving, they're putting up a fight. Putting up a fight. Uh, so pick four. Start it off then. All right, the game of the week this week is a potential elimination game: Boston, uh, Tampa Bay, Game Six in Tampa Bay. I will say. Tampa Bay holds on, force a game seven. I don't know where it goes from there. Anything can happen, but I'm going to say Tampa at home takes it. I picked this game as the game of the week simply because it was the only elimination game we know for sure at this point. Well, actually, that's not true. The Mavs in Oklahoma City game five. But since this is a game six, I went with that. And uh, I'm going to take the Bruins. I think the Bruins kind of have the lightning rattled a little bit. Lightning are flip-flopping on goalies. Yeah, I'm gonna take. I'm gonna go with Tim Thomas. Take the Bruins to advance to their first Stanley Cup Finals appearance since 1990, I believe. My host choice is uh, the Heat at the Bulls game five tomorrow night. 
I'm going to take Miami. I don't like to do it, but I just think they're the team to beat maybe right now. If it's not Dallas, it's probably them. My host choice, I'm going to take the Phillies, who will be pitching Roy Halladay over the Reds, pitching Kerry Wood Wednesday, 7.05 on ESPN2. I went with a stud ace pitcher last week in Lincecum, so why not a stud ace pitcher in Halladay this week? My worldwide leader, uh, I picked this game because uh, I kind of adopted Oklahoma City as my team, I guess, because they'd won me a few picks. So Wednesday at 9 p.m. on ESPN, they play in Dallas, but I will take again Oklahoma City to hang on for one more day. I have the same game, but I'm going to go the other way. I think the Mavs really are on fire. Um, Just they've dominated the playoffs, Uh, barely lost. Uh, so I'm going to pick Dirk and the Mavs to win game five, like Don said, 9 o'clock Wednesday on ESPN. My bold prediction is fairly bold, I think, uh, but that's how we've been doing it. Uh, with the owners' meetings and things in football actually starting to get canceled now, like I know free agency's been delayed. but The rookie symposium Right, there's actual, actually things that should be happening now that aren't. I'm going to say the owners and players get together and they end the lockout. This week. This week. That's very bold. I'm not saying they necessarily be practicing come Tuesday. Right, or anything, but the but lockout will be over. Yep. All right. Well, I hope you're right. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> My bold prediction is that Dirk, who is averaging 28.6 points a game, will drop 40 or more in eliminating Oklahoma City in Game 5 on Wednesday. Sounds good. All right. So, again, thank you to Adam Schefter. Thank you to Ben Nicholson-Smith. Thank you to Ty from the Lions in Winter. We will be back next week with Jim Miller. Cue the hip. All right.